welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show on climate and energy issues by young people, for all people. My name is Evan, and I have a vegetable and herb garden in my backyard. But that's not the only exciting thing this week. For one, we've all got new snazzy mics. And it's just the three of us, me, Stephen, and Kelly. But more importantly, we've got a birthday boy. Stephen, how does it feel to be 24? Oh, man. <laughs> Thanks for that intro, Evan. Um... It feels weird, um, I guess. Um, it feels weird to be having a birthday in, in quarantine, which is something I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. Um, there's not much of a celebration going on, but besides that, like I feel like I'm in my mid-20s now, which is also very strange. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, another year, I guess. Another year wiser, hopefully. We'll see. Happy birthday, Steven. <laughs> Thank you. So Kelly, you're now uh, even officially the youngest uh, member of the uh, crew. How does it feel? I always was. I'm 22. 22. God. I'm I'm a Zoomer. I'm I'm a certified young person. <laughs> you guys are millennials. Millennials are basically boomers. You know. That's true. <laughs> Did you guys see the uh, the um tweet today about how Gen Zers are talking about millennials on TikTok. I did. I felt so attacked. <laughs> talking about like my Hogwarts house. Oh, it really yeah. I, I think I'm going to start changing some behavior after I saw that. <laughs> Whatever, I'm proud of it. I don't want to be roasted by uh these TikTokers. Yeah, well Evan, aren't aren't you a a phenomenon on TikTok? Oldest oldest uh, TikToker out there? Yeah. <laughs> okay, not oldest, but uh I'd like to take a quick moment, shout out uh, at Honeycombs Jr. on TikTok. Give him a follow. He's, <laughs> he's got some pretty great content on there. So anyway, today we're going to be talking about electric vehicles. And even though um, this is the first episode since our two-part series on environmental justice, we're going to talk about electric vehicles through the lens of environmental justice. And we're going to do that for topics here on out, because I think it's crucial to maintain that lens when we're talking about environmental issues. Because environmental justice and environmental issues go hand in hand. So, uh, Stephen, why don't you start us out? Cool. I, I think that's exactly right. I just think that we, we, as we start to move on to other topics in this podcast, we have to always remember to, to keep it centered in terms of justice and, and all the, the racial inequities that we are seeing in this, in this country and in the world. Yeah, I agree. And, I mean... There's various arguments for this, which is like the reason we're in this climate fight is because we want to do the right thing and justice is the right thing to do. There's also just the argument that there are billions of people around the world who are going to be suffering the impacts of climate change who had almost nothing to do with creating the emissions that caused it. And we need to bring them on board to help us build the solutions. And that's critical. Um, in the U.S. also, there's a lot of communities that care a lot about climate change, but have been underrepresented in the conversation. And when we're talking about the solutions, we need to um, elevate them into positions of leadership and provide um, assistance to their communities as well. Right. So that having been said, Today we're talking about electric vehicles or EVs as they're known in the industry. When talking about EVs, we cannot not talk about Elon Musk. Elon Musk, you know, love him or hate him, he is a very eccentric and interesting figure. Um, I kind of think of him very similar to Rick from Rick and Morty. Um, that's just my personal take. But, um, you know, love him or hate him, he is pretty much the face of EVs in the world. So before, before Tesla was even a thing, um, there were electric vehicles. There, there certainly are electric vehicles outside of the Elon Musk like hype, but 
you know, so some of those some of those vehicles in the United States were co- companies like Nissan and Chevy creating cars like the Nissan Leaf and the Chevy Volt. Essentially, if you haven't heard of these cars, I wouldn't be surprised. There was very low interest um, or success, and essentially what happened is that they 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 branded them very similarly to the Toyota Prius. Ultimately, it was this idea of like, oh, if you want to care about the environment, you should buy this car. It'll be cheap. It, it was affordable. Um, had good mileage and it was it was a solid car, but there wasn't much interest in that. Um, and then came Elon Musk. He branded Tesla in a certain way. I would say it's very similar to what the, um, Apple did to the smartphone. Like there were smartphones before before the iPhone, but iPhones like changed the game. iPhones made um, smartphones sexy. Um, same thing as Tesla. Tesla has made electric vehicles sexy. In fact. If you look at the, the different models in Tesla, like you have the Model S, you have the Model 3, the Model X, and the Model Y, and ultimately that spells sexy. So like, Elon's not hiding about this. This is, was his plan since the beginning. Um, really, he had this, when he, when he first started Tesla um, about 10 years ago, he had a manifesto about what he was trying to do with Tesla. Step one was to create a low volume car, which would necessarily be expensive. And this is the Tesla Roadster. Essentially, he had a little bit of, well, he had a lot of money from PayPal, um, but he didn't have enough money to fund ultimately what he wants to do, which is put electric vehicles in everyone's um, garage. So first of all, create a low volume car that's expensive. Secondly, use that money to develop a medium volume at a lower price. Third, use that money to create an affordable high volume car. And step four, which is where we are now, is provide solar power. No kidding, this has been on his website for 10 years. It hasn't changed. So anyone can just you know, look at that manifesto. Outside of, outside of personal use vehicles, um, Tesla is also unveiling cars, um, vehicles such as the Cybertruck, which I'm sure many of you have seen, the PS1-inspired um, medium-duty medium truck, as well as uh, heavy-duty trucks, which will go like those long-haul 18-wheelers that will be going... On, on the highway for hours and hours on end. Um, ultimately, what his goal is for Tesla is to create autonomous um, electric vehicle fleets to the point where we don't even have to drive a car anymore. We can just sit in there, um, be an autopilot, and ultimately, it would be a lot cleaner and a lot more efficient and a lot more cool. I think to the general public who's not in the industry, they definitely only know about Tesla because Elon Musk is such a character. Not to, like insult him in any way because i think definitely tesla and spacex as well like they just launched humans into space like the amount of technical prowess and ingenuity needed to do that is not anything to scoff at and tesla has definitely put evs on the map especially in the u.s however there's a lot of other countries that are doing a lot more efforts around vehicle electrification not just through teslas um, so one thing that I will say is that I think part of the reason Tesla has been able to succeed as a startup is that they don't have any IP, um, basically intellectual property tied up in the fact that they've been investing in um, fossil fueled cars for like 100 years. Like Volkswagen, they've been building fossil fuel cars for 100 years and they don't want like switching to EVs. That's kind of just throwing away everything that they've been working on for their entire history and starting over from scratch. Maybe they can do it, but the people who are in leadership positions in that company, they're kind. it's very difficult to switch an entire organization. I was talking to my coworkers about this the other day, and they're saying, yeah, like BMW, they have the i3, which is an electric car that's doing reasonably well, but they want to scrap it in exchange for switching their current models to maybe like hybrid electric models, which 
I don't know why they're just like very invested in their um, traditional product lineup, but that is something um, like the incumbency factor that plays a factor for traditional OEMs, uh, basically car manufacturers to not switch to EVs as quickly as we would need them to. And I think that um, on that point so, about I- IPs, I think that's that's actually to 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 Tesla's credit and to Elon Musk's credit, they have un- they have opened up their blueprints to anyone. They've made their, they made it open source, and they want people to come in and compete with them, which is like the nature of Tesla. They they don't want to necessarily be the winner of EVs. They just want to stimulate competition and get everyone on board into EVs, which is like it's incredible. What what other companies doing that? They're releasing their IPs and they're not being, you know, possessive. Well, not all their IP. Like the main advantage that they have is that their battery packs are like 3 to 5 years ahead of the competition. Um and what they released was their charging protocol and they are the only I mean, we don't have to get into like extreme detail, but basically the Tesla charging protocol is different than the charging protocols for all other cars. Um and so they're not using like the agreed upon standard protocol, but because they have so much market share, especially in the U.S., you do have to make the Tesla plug on any charging station. But that's a whole different argument. Um, one thing that I wanted to bring up is that when we talk about EVs, generally it's kind of focused on the idea of personal vehicles um, rather than mo- kind of mobility solutions. So a world that's full of where every single single occupancy vehicle today is replaced with a Tesla is still a world that's full of gridlock traffic. And it's not like beyond just the emissions, like sitting in traffic is really not good for anyone's health. Um, And so I think um, a lot of people who are thinking about decarbonizing transportation are also thinking about how we can move beyond the paradigm of uh, single occupancy vehicles or um, personal car ownership. And so with the um, Tesla fleets, I think that's one step, but also electrifying other vehicles like buses is another critically important step. So actually in China, they are far and away the leaders on this. Um, Within the last five years, they've electrified like 99% of the buses around the country. BYD um, is is a Chinese company that builds EVs and their specialty is essentially electric buses and they've deployed over a million of their buses within China. And... I think the Chinese government um, basically has their view is that um, electric vehicles and clean technology is a strategic um, play for the future of industry and they need to be investing in this and it's like their government's priority to just pour a ton of resources into it. I will say though that um, the reason why the Chinese government is able to do that is because the national government is like, okay, everyone's going to switch to electric buses, we're all going to do it. And even if the buses maybe don't perform as well, it's okay for them because they're like, oops, we messed up. It's okay. We'll replace it after five years. Whereas in the U.S., I think a lot of um, the agencies that run transit organizations are a lot more concerned about cost effectiveness and stuff like that. But it's still interesting to see what other countries are doing. Um, Going back to the environmental justice component. So one of the reasons why fossil fuel burning vehicles are so bad is that they cause air pollution that disproportionately harms um, poor communities, especially communities of color that tend to live closer to highways. And so in quarantine, I think we saw, like in the beginning of quarantine, we were seeing these pictures like, oh, LA, clear skies, it's so beautiful because no one's driving. But actually, I think the original pictures was like it had just rained a lot and also no one was driving. So it was clear for a couple days. Um, and then later they found the measurements um, throughout the month of 
I think April and May found out that the amount of um, air pollution had actually only decreased by 14% even when everyone was working from home. Uh, I just want to say as an LA resident, I can vouch for this. The smog is still here. (laughs) Yeah. So the reason for that is that a lot of small vehicles, they're already fairly clean and don't emit that much um, particulate matter or smog uh, causing emissions, whereas a lot of most of it is coming from trucks. And the trucks that are delivering our goods from Amazon are still totally like out there emitting like crazy. And so I think um, the efforts to electrify um, transit fleets are going to be really important to reaping the benefits of electrification. And it's also probably easier to switch to change the minds of like a few people who operate these fleets. Like the, there's a couple decision makers who make this decision rather than like every single person who currently owns a car has to like make their next car an electric car. Yeah, and like um, to that point, I think that, um, a simple point that we maybe overlooked. I just wanted to point out the fact that what is the difference between an EV and an ICE, or an electric vehicle and an internal combustion engine? It seems kind of obvious, but, you know, one of them has explosive parts within there, and it's, it's fueled by fossil fuels, and the other one is it's a battery, and you kind of plug it into the wall, essentially. Um, so when you're thinking about, um, you know, envi- environmental justice is what Kelly just talked about, and, like, talking about climate change as well, like, thinking at, um, looking at emissions, um, one, way, one, one way people have decided, on, one broad strategy people have for decarbonizing the world is to electrify everything, and then decarbonize all of electricity, and then clean up the rest after that. So that's, this is kind of in line with that mantra. So if as we are decarbonizing the electricity sector, and we're seeing that the electricity sector overall is, is actually starting to shrink in emissions, transportation is still, is still very large and in, in, in many ways increasing in its emissions. So this is one way to start to, to um, flatten that curve and get um, electric vehicles onto that um, electrify everything and clean up, clean up electricity uh, mantra. So when we talk yeah. about transportation, it's not just um, personal vehicles. It's not just trucks and shipping. Um, there's also like you know all airplanes. There's also barges. Like shipping is not just in in a land, but like so much of of carbon emissions comes from intercontinental um, barges. Um, and to that point, there's a company called Maersk, um, which is one of the largest shipping companies in the entire world, and they've actually committed to decarbonizing their entire operations by 2050. Um, which is, is actually very mind-blowing, like the fact that they can make that commitment. And the thing is, that technology doesn't exist yet. So like the point I'm trying to make here is that if we're really trying to decarbonize transportation, we need um, innovation. We need R&D, and we need new technology to come out, which is exciting. Like We should get some tech nerds to like jump onto this, this, uh, this wave, because it's going to be a lot of fun trying to figure out how to solve these problems. Just to be clear on the difference between ICE and EV, uh, could you just lay out a few examples on uh, vehicles that are ICE and vehicles that are actually electric? Yeah, I mean, any any company, any car that you fill up at a gas tank is an ICE, an internal combustion engine. It has an engine that you um, essentially has small explosions inside of a um, little metal box, and it turns the pistons and it allows like wheels to turn and creates force and torque. Um, and electric vehicles um, are fundamentally different in that in that um, propulsion technology and that there's just like an electric motor. It's like, it's similar to, um, um, essentially it's, you're asking the question of like, what is, where does the energy come from? One of them is from explosions and, and 
combusting fuels, and the other one is from electrons that are stored in a battery, similar to when, you, when you're turning on a flashlight or turning on the lights. It's just like flipping a switch. Yeah, and I mean, so also to build on Stephen's point about how transportation is becoming a bigger source of emissions, um, in 2018, I think uh, transportation became the biggest source of emissions in the U.S. It's uh, 28% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions compared to electricity, 27%. And that's because we kind of have a roadmap for how we can decarbonize electricity, right? You just build more renewables and batteries and plug them in. So it's not that difficult. We know how to do it. But with transportation, because it's, I mean, there's a lot more cars out there. So it's going to be a more difficult road. So another um, interesting thing is that a lot of countries and cities are now banning the sale of new internal combustion engine vehicles. Um so, for instance, there's a lot of cities in China that are banning the sale of gasoline or diesel vehicles by 2030. The UK is considering a ban on the sale of new uh, gasoline cars by 2035 or 2032. I think the state of Washington was also considering this ban um, by 2035. And I think people are like, well, I think there are some people saying that it's super radical, but that doesn't mean that you can't own a gasoline car. It just means that you can't buy a new gasoline car. So you could buy a model year 2034 gasoline car. You just model year 30, 2035, you're no longer to have gasoline cars. And I think, um, especially as EV technology improves, I think that'll become more and more feasible. Like the cost of batteries is declining. There's projections that the cost of a new EV will be lower than the cost of a new internal combustion engine vehicle by 2030. And so at that point, I mean, anyone doing the economic calculation would totally just go with the EV because it's better. Sure. And I think on that point, it's like the, like it's, it's, I think like human beings, especially American individuals are like different in their thinking though. They're not going to think about it. Many of them are not going to think about it so much from a dollars and cents perspective of like which one's more expensive, which one's cheaper. But a lot of them are going to think about it from like a freedom perspective. And they're going to say like, how dare you take away my freedom to buy an ICE if I want to buy an ICE? And I think that's like a, a problem that we're seeing a lot right now in, in America as well. I'm just like idea of personal freedom. So I think the way I would suggest solving that problem would be to propose a solution that is just as sexy and just as awesome as what exists now. Um, and it's like, I, I, I want to think about um, being able to decarbonize this world and like still provide those creature comforts that Americans are so spoiled and like that we, that we all want. Because um, obviously the, the, the ideal solution would be like behavioral change, but I just don't think American consciousness is, is primed for that. And now it's time for Evan's Climate Fact of the Day. Did you know, if you say XAEA-12 three times in front of a mirror, it'll jar... No. <laughs> it'll what? I messed it up. <laughs> Retake. Did you know, if you say XAEA-12 three times in front of a mirror, it'll jailbreak your iPhone? <laughs> and that was Evan's Climate Fact of the Day. So in typical renewable generation fashion, uh, the first section of the podcast was kind of a status quo of what's going on in the world right now. And the next section is going to be, uh, where do we go from here? Kelly, do you want to start us off? Yeah. So um, there's a really interesting article in the New York Times um, last year about um, electri uh, this program called Electrify America. They were funded by 
$2 billion out of the Volkswagen diesel gate scandal um, from the settlement. $2 billion of that was allocated towards investing in public charging infrastructure. California received $800 million of that and is requiring 35% of their um, $800 million to go towards um, funding um, EV infrastructure in low-income and disadvantaged communities. And so I think that's great because there is a perception which is probably true that EVs are typically only accessible to the wealthy, like Teslas, even their low cost model three, like it's a car that you buy to flex how cool and rich you are. And you can disagree, you might disagree with that personally, but that is generally the perception. And so um, some of these funds that are earmarked for low income communities are going towards projects like um, 140 Volkswagen e-golf cars, which are at um, 70 low-income apartment complexes, which are used for car sharing. So this allows people in these low-income um, housing projects to be able to access the benefits of electric vehicles, which is fantastic. Additionally, because it's car sharing, you get more people who are benefiting from it per vehicle. Um, and there's also um, another pilot project where they put 260 Chevy, Chevy Bolts for this car sharing service called GIG. Um, in a 13-square-mile area of Sacramento, and that area is 70% low-income. So, I mean, there have been studies that show that um, the EV tax credit is, like, incredibly regressive because it goes primarily to people who are very wealthy. And I think the next step now is, like, okay, the EV market is there. Now we need to focus on how we can get um, the benefits of EVs to everyone. And I think Electrify America is doing a great job in um, spearheading that. Um, there's also some questions about, like, some of the representatives from more rural regions of California were um, asking questions about, well, um, are they going to be investing in rural areas as well? And I think that's also something that they're um, looking to do in the future. Um, but then beyond just accessing um, these vehicles, there's also some questions about the sourcing of materials that are used in electric vehicles. Um, so, Stephen, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, so this, this is something that... Um I, I thought about that I, I learned about in college and then and then we started thinking about it in my company when we started to move towards batteries um, so um, in terms of envir environmental justice we're always thinking about yeah these things are great but who has access to these technologies and who is providing you know um, in this case who is providing the materials that go into these electric vehicles so in terms of electric vehicle, a lot of that, a lot of that, the, the materials is going to be steel and aluminum, which is like the framework of the car. Um, you have, you know, various other components as well, but really like focusing, um, really focusing on the battery here. Um, the battery is, is largely made out of lithium and cobalt. Um, so lithium is, is mainly sourced from um, South American countries such as Chile and Argentina. And in these places you get, um, when you get companies coming in, <clears throat> Companies coming in and um, hiring hiring workers to to essentially mine, um, you you're gonna get a lot of potential risks there. Um, you have land and water disputes with the people. Um, you're also gonna have corruption from corrupt governments in South America, abuse of governmental power, and overall just abuse um, like OSHA violations and um, overworking workers um, as well. Um, when you're th thinking about cobalt, um, you're going to look at usually um, countries such as the Democratic Republic of Congo in Africa, um, and there we have um, very high risks of child labor exploitation. Um, really, the way the way the global supply chain works is um, to a large degree, China is kind of the 
the kingpin of, of this industry and they they hire companies to go into these into these countries that I just mentioned and extract those sources um, sorry extract those materials eventually ship them over to some other country in Southeast Asia and they refine it there eventually goes to China for some packaging and usually a product of some sort which is like a lithium battery product gets shipped over to um, wherever it's going to be uh, produced or manufactured um, so that's generally how like the global supply chain works um, in terms of um, you know thinking about um, newer battery chemistries um, I think Kelly you could probably speak to this better than I can about um, yeah. different kinds of batteries yeah um, so I think there there are a lot of concerns with the sourcing of materials for electric vehicles, and that's something that we shouldn't dismiss because, like, as we're trying to build a better society, we need to actually address these concerns. And I think that's in part why some people say, like, personal EVs can't be the solution to everything because the amount of lithium that you need to create batteries for every single person's EV would be, it would result in the um, desecration of pristine environments in Bolivia. But there are different um, new advances in some battery chemistries. So um, the traditional, so the original lithium-ion battery that was invented in the 70s was the cathode was called um, LCO. So that's lithium cobalt oxide. The cobalt is there to basically stabilize the lithium. Over time, it's evolved to being things like NMC111. That's nickel, manganese, and cobalt in a one-to-one-to-one ratio. Um, Over time, I think um, they've also evolved the... I think the standard now is NMC532, which is five nickels, three manganese, and two cobalt, which reduces the cobalt to only 20%. And now the most advanced NMC batteries are now 811. So you only have only 10% of the battery is cobalt. So you could recycle like one old lithium cobalt uh, battery and get enough cobalt to make 10 new um, lithium uh, or NMC811 batteries. So the issue as well is that the way that batteries are designed right now is not conducive to recycling and recovering these materials that have so many issues in their supply chain. So currently, um, because cobalt is the most valuable material, recycling processes only get the cobalt. And there's two main recycling processes. One is basically you burn the battery and then like you heat it up, a lot of things burn, you take out the cobalt, everything else, it's used as essentially a additive to concrete, which makes it stronger. But the fact that you are wasting lithium and just putting it dispersed in like concrete in some building somewhere, it's going to be extremely hard to recover the lithium from that. The other way of doing it is basically dissolving everything in sulfuric acid and then getting the cobalt out of it, which is the same idea. At the end of the day, you still your own, the only high value component you're getting out of that is the cobalt and a lot of the lithium just goes to waste. Even Tesla, like if you read Tesla's statement about their recycling, they're like, oh, this is so great, but they are not recycling the lithium. And I think there's several reasons for that. Like they also are against the reuse of their batteries. I think they don't want to have like aftermarket Tesla products popping up because that could maybe negatively impact their brand. But that's something that people are like, oh, Tesla's like doing this battery recycling. Like, are they really? There's companies working now on advancing their battery recycling technologies. I honestly think that having some government standard could spur more innovation in battery recycling. So when you're talking about these elements that I'm only familiar with from the periodic table in my eighth grade chemistry class, you're speaking a lot to the negative impacts that EVs have on the environment. But how do they stack up with ICE vehicles? Oh, yeah. So speaking of the batteries, right, there's a lot of people, some some of the criticisms of EVs are that because the manufacturing of the batteries is very carbon intensive, ICE vehicles might not be as bad. 
Um, so there's some studies that have done a full life cycle assessment of EVs versus internal combustion engine vehicles. They find that for um, ICE vehicles, the vast majority of emissions come from the operation. So if you're driving a vehicle for 10 years, the total emissions from the EV is about half as much as the ICE vehicle. So that's a significant improvement, but that doesn't negate the fact that the um, original emissions from manufacturing the battery are very high. And um, the emissions per mile, because the um, operational emissions from the EV is so low, EVs that are driven more actually have way more of a climate benefit because if you're, for instance, replacing a taxi, you're replacing 300,000 gasoline miles with electric miles versus if it's just like your own personal vehicle that you just drive to work, like, I don't know, 10 miles each way um, each day, you're not actually getting the maximum benefit out of it. So if we're thinking about ways to uh, maximize the benefit per vehicle, we should first be thinking about electrifying things like taxis, car share vehicles um, to maximize their impacts. Yeah, so exactly to your point, right? Like electric vehicles are now going to be um, electric loads on a grid. So when you think about the grid infrastructure, which is the grid is is all these utility lines you see outside. Um, you kind we kind of don't even pay attention to them anymore. They're so they're so like ingrained into our, like they're essentially like subconsciously always there. Even like when you're in rural communities, way out in the in the sticks and in the in sticks of some of like Minnesota, for example, there's still like utility uh, infrastructure no matter where you go. So essentially what we're doing is we're adding, in the next coming decades, we're adding huge amounts of, of load onto the grid now, which is um, just going to be a problem. We, we need to supply that energy somehow, all right? And we're, we're building out solar and wind and other clean energy sources right now, but um, it's not so much, the problem isn't always how much energy you're, you're adding on, but also when is that energy on the grid and for, for what you need it to, um, to fulfill. So I, I'm speaking very vaguely here. So let me, let me put it concrete. So, so say um, 50% of the U.S. population all of a sudden is, is adopting electric vehicles, and they're driving them to work, and they're plugging them in. So during the day, they're going to be plugged in to some outlet demanding energy. They're going to be consuming electricity in the same way that your house, you pay an electricity bill because you run you know, the fan or the AC. So now we have all these, all these uh, cars charging at the same time. So that's going to create this, the grid is going to be, have a spike in demand, which we need to meet with a spike in supply of energy. So the good thing is that a lot of solar um, is, the sun is shining during the day. So a lot of the solar energy that we produce can just go straight to electric vehicles. And it actually ends up being a very um, complementary solution. Um, because one of the problems in the solar energy industry is that you produce solar in the winds, but a lot of people are not necessarily consuming energy in, in the day. Um, when they're away from their homes. And um, so a lot of times we have excess solar energy and we end up just throwing it away. It's called curtailment. We just throw away electrons, essentially throwing away money. Um, it ends up being, so far the problem is pretty cheap. It's, it's not very expensive to just throw away solar energy. But the good thing is, this is one way we can pick up that slack. Um, electric vehicles at the end of the day are just giant batteries on wheels. Um, so you can just think about like electric vehicles as like battery storage, which is something you'll hear a lot in the solar and wind industries, like battery storage solutions is huge. Um, so um, another problem with electric vehicles, um, in terms of maybe not the electrical infrastructure, but in terms of adoption of electric vehicles, um, a, lot of, a lot of people have this thing called range anxiety. And they think like, oh, if I buy an electric vehicle, that's great and all, but what if I'm trying to get to like my aunt's house and there's no charging infrastructure from between here and there? Um, you know, I don't want to be out in the middle of like Ventura and not have a way to get back to, you know, 
like Glendale or something. This is a shout out to the California peeps. <laughs> but, you know, it, people are worried about um, how am I going to get from point A to point B? Am I going to be safe? Um, am I going to be able to get there? Because with a car, you know, an ICE car, you can just fill up at, at a Chevron or a Shell, you know, no, no problems. You don't even have to worry about it. So that's, that's one of the things that people think about, range anxiety. Um, however, that, that anxiety is actually pretty misplaced. Um, most, um, so the Tesla right now has about 300 miles of range. Um, on one single charge and if you think about it like 300 miles is like a really far distance like how often do we travel 300 miles in in like one trip you know most americans travel between 10 and 20 miles per day um if even that so it's it's not really so much of a problem but the fact that it's a perceived problem still means it's a problem because that's just how people human beings work um so one way we could kind of solve that is do like a nationwide EV fast charging network, um, which would be like this whole infrastructure bill. It'd be a stimulus bill, which going back to our point about COVID, um, we could use this kind of building out of EVs to get people to, to work, get them jobs and, and build out some, some helpful infrastructure, which, which ultimately would help us out in the long run. Um, and there are, there are several companies out there right now working on EVs, both on the creation of EVs, but also um, servicing utilities, um, the, grid, the grid operators at the end of the day. Um, because as I mentioned, like having all these electric vehicles on the grid is going to be a problem. Like we need to, um, we need to find a good way to integrate all these new, um, electric, uh, nodes onto the grid in a, in a seamless way that, that, that doesn't cause, you know, massive blackouts all the time. So there are certain companies, um, like weave grid, um, they're, they're a startup based out of San Francisco, um, and their CEO and president's name is Apoorv Bhargava. He is a really interesting guy. You should check him out. He's a, a Stanford MBA, and um, I think he has an MS in, in energy systems as well. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of these problems we're thinking about is now going to be electricity, yes, but also very data centric problems and trying to figure out how to meet um, demands with um, whatever number of electric res- um, energy resources that we have um, at any given time. Um, but yeah, um, ultimately, this is a good. These are good problems to have as we start to um, move forward in decarbonization. Um, ultimately, EVs are batteries at the end of the day, and we should view them as as a resource as well. So there's like this really cool like interplay that we can do where we're we're not just plugging in those EVs and just it's a static charging situation, but they're also kind of they're not just taking energy from the grid, but they're also giving energy back into the grid at the same time. And there's all this like dynamic charging opportunities, which is like really really exciting. Yeah, so I um, would say they're not literally putting energy back into the grid at the same time that they're charging. But even Tesla, which has been historically resistant to allow their cars to put energy back into the grid, has recently started building vehicle-to-grid capability in their vehicles. Um, And with things like workplace charging, especially like taking advantage of more solar, I think it's that's great because it's flexible, right? You're like, okay, you go to work at nine, you know, you're going to leave at five. So you can say, okay, I'm going to leave at five. And by then I want to be charged. So the grid operator or whoever's managing it has a lot of flexibility in figuring out when you need to charge when like solar isn't curtailed at every second of every day. And then um, having more flexibility in the load will um, allow you to kind of play around with that a bit. And another interesting um thing is that so in the past historically the way that energy worked is that we would um, forecast energy demand 
and then use our supply to match it. So you're like, okay, people are all going to be coming home. They're all going to be like using energy. So we need to ramp up our power plants. In the future, with more intermittent renewables, we're going to be forecasting supply, right? It's going to be sunny. It's going to be windy. So there's going to be um, more electricity. And then we can adjust our demand to fit. If like if you have a car that has a charge of 300 miles, you don't even need to really charge it every day. Um, or if you have like if you have battery storage, maybe if there's a lot of strain on the grid, you can use that as your resource. And so, um, kind of changing the paradigm of how we think about electricity supply, um, EVs are definitely like the biggest flexible load um, because the amount of power that they draw is like on par with a house. And so, the amount of um, impact that it could have on the grid if managed properly is huge. There's a lot of companies working on it, um, startups like WeaveGrid, even big companies, um, even like BP has like a charging infrastructure play um, among other people. I guess maybe they're truly beyond petroleum now, but I don't know. We'll see. So this is a fairly speculative question, but when you talk about um, instead of managing demand, switching to managing supply, in a country like America, as Stephen was saying, where people uh, tend to want and they it, there's so much demand and we're used to being able to satiate this demand – how do you think that works in America without like a huge shift in like our social paradigm? Well, so um, there's a quote from this guy named Amory Lovins who started the Rocky Mountain Institute, which is um, a think tank that works on clean energy issues. So he said, what Americans want is not energy. What they want is warm showers and cold beers. So if you can provide that with that, like, I don't think anyone who's saying like we should shift demand is saying like we need all customers to sacrifice right if we have energy storage even like thermal storage if you have a little like box in your basement that can create ice um, when there's extra energy and then use that to help your air conditioning system um, when it's hot but there's not as much energy available there's absolutely no impact to you and um, you're helping to shift energy on the grid so things like um, energy storage um, I think are going to be a huge game changer in that regard um, and I think it's it's really important that we talk about non-battery energy storage because, as we mentioned, there's a lot of um, questions about the supply of lithium. And, like, literally just making a box of ice is pretty uh, – there's not so many supply um, constraints or um, ethical concerns with that. Yeah, and I think another thing – so when you're talking about – you're kind of talking about, like, changing that behavioral load side or demand side, I think that's – one of the problems that a lot of these um, energy wonks are thinking about is like, yes, we're, pro we're providing more solar and wind on the grid, so there's a lot more energy just sourcing. Like, we have that energy there. But there's also talk about curtailing and changing the, the, the demand side, um, which is like to your point, Evan, like, one way that people are thinking about doing that is through like these things called time of use tariffs, which like the utility will say, okay, if you consume energy at, um, you know, 5 to 6 p.m., it's gonna be like really expensive. Versus if you use energy at like 11 p.m. when like less people are using it, it's going to be less expensive. So they're kind of like trying to incentivize consumer behavior into a way that is like easier to manage for them so that they have kind of a more or less smooth load profile that they have to manage versus like all this, these spikes. Because generally people um, around 5 to 6 p.m. we call this it's like kind of like peak demand of, of the day. Because a lot of people are coming home from work and they're turning on their microwaves and they're turning on their TVs and like doing all these, like, you know, setting up their house and all of a sudden, like, the grid spikes. And that's really expensive. Like, it's actually a very expensive problem for utilities to deal with, and it's also, like, very dirty in terms of emissions. So, like, that's one way that you can yeah. kind of solve that with, you know, as Kelly was saying, like, battery storage. Like, you can, you can be a lot more flexible with that and deal with time of use rates. So, it's the future. 
Well, looking at the time, I think it's time for AOC's favorite segment of the show. It's the Green News Spiel. Kelly, why don't you start us off? Cool. Um, So this one is actually relevant to our topic. So um, I saw this article about how um, biking is now becoming the preferred mode of transportation in a lot of cities in Europe because people don't want to ride on the subway because you can't social distance. Um, They... Um, in a lot of European cities, the streets are small, so you can't drive. And so bicycling is becoming um, a big thing. And like the lines for bike shops are going out the door. Um, a lot of bike lanes are popping up and people are using them. And so I think show, like the fact that this has changed so quickly in a matter of months is really um, a sign of hope, I think, for people who are want to advocate for um, modes of transportation beyond just driving. Um, so it's a sign that we can switch to more active modes of transportation. All right, Stephen, you got a green news spiel for us? I do, yeah. So this week I'd like to talk about this a new study that was released by UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy and Grid Lab. So they, they released a paper that said a 90% clean grid in the U.S. is um, by 2035 is not only feasible and more robust, um, but also cheaper. Um, so kind of like win, 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 win. Um, and it's, this is thanks to a stunning decline in the cost of technology, mainly solar and wind. Um, so when I say 90% clean energy, it's 90% um, solar wind and other clean energy sources like nuclear, and the remaining would be like 10% of natural gas. Um, so really, uh, has, this is due to um, these, the cost of these technologies dropping exponentially faster than any experts had predicted, even the experts that created this paper. So even the most optimistic experts were not optimistic enough. So that's, like, really good news. Um, The thing is, though, this is all dependent on passing federal policy. Um, So this is, like, it's similar to, I saw this article that said, like, oh, clean energy is doing great, but it's not enough to meet climate targets. And really, you should be flipping that narrative to saying clean energy is doing great, and we can meet those climate targets if federal policy will just, like, step in. So it's really the lack of federal policy that we're seeing here, not the lack of technology. Um, So the the key federal policies that would need to be changed – um, to get us to that 2035 uh, 90% clean energy grid would be a national clean energy standard, which Kelly has talked about in previous episodes, um, as well as streamlining permitting, interconnection, and market rules, because currently it's a hodgepodge of like different counties have different rules and different townships have different rules. It is a headache to try to be a solar um, developer right now. Like a- Every single place you work in has a different set of rules, and like it's mind-boggling. Um, and, and lastly, building out transmission lines, which means that energy that you produced in Idaho could be sent to Florida if you wanted it to. Um, so, yeah, we can we can get there as long as we get policy in line and, you know, we can actually solve this this problem. Yeah, it's really interesting that even the forecast from organizations like Greenpeace weren't optimistic enough about the cost declines of renewable energy. So that's pretty cool. All right. Well, thank you, Stephen and Kelly, for your Green News spiels. And with that, we wrap up the segment and we wrap up the show. Thanks, as always, for listening to The Renewable Generation. Feel free to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. We just got our first four-star review, which was exciting because that means someone took the time to listen and go, you know what? That was good, but not five-star good, which I appreciate. (laughs) It makes us strive to be better. So... Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week.